Alright, hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm Dale, uh, the Real Seeker, and uh, just wanted to do a quick solo, supplemental solo show for my um, Shroud of Turin series. So last time I did uh, part 13, assessing the direct contact mechanisms, and I just wanted to do um, a short supplemental show because uh, it occurred to me that I neglected to mention one of the major pieces of evidence is, uh, that are alleged against you know, as a counter feature against the Shroud of Turin being formed through direct contact in terms of its blood stains, And that's the fact that back in July of 2018, um, a couple of scientists, uh, Luigi Garlocelli, we learned about him as a hyper-shroud skeptic who took one of the uh, frottage or powder rubbing mechanisms, um, and another skeptic named Matteo Barini, Dr. Uh, Matteo Barini uh, published a paper in the Journal of Forensic Sciences, a peer-reviewed science journal, called the BPA Approach to the Shroud of Turin. And in this um, approach, we'll get into it, they did a series of experiments that I'll describe in a moment, and they alleged to provide proof, you know, it was all in CNN and all these media outlets, popular level media outlets, proof the Shroud of Turin's a fake, because they did these experiments looking at the blood patterns or blood flows uh, that happened on the experiments. And they said, well, this is inconsistent with the blood flows or pattern blood patterns that we see on the shroud. Therefore, um, the shroud of trans blood stains could not have uh, been encoded onto the shroud through naturalistic direct contact alone. Uh, and thus it must be a medieval fake or artistic image in some of some sort. And, you know, the, the media just mindlessly went with this and said, oh, there was proof and all this stuff. They did their thing. Um, you know, they're, they're not critical thinkers, so uh, that makes sense. But um, still, I, I think this is really important because it speaks directly to the falsity of the direct contact thesis. So I want to take some time to go over what were the experiments that they did uh, and what they showed and how does that relate to the strata trend? Does it in fact falsify that the Shroud of Turin's bloodstains could have been formed th naturalistically through the direct contact mechanism or not. Now, one thing just to note here, even before we begin, let's pretend these experiments are correct. The conclusions that these hyper-skeptics have come, come up with as Shroud skeptics, they're all right. And yeah, it, the Shroud's bloodstains couldn't have been formed through direct con naturalistic direct contact alone. Well, does this prove that the, it must, the Shroud's bloodstains must have been painted or formed through some artistic mechanism, like being painted? No. Come on, skeptics. Uh, critical thinking here. No, because um, it just means that it could also just mean, just as equally mean, that the Shroud's bloodstains were formed supernaturally through an extraordinary mechanism at the time of Jesus' resurrection. And this is proof that that happened. I mean, as we go through... Um, more and more mechanisms, we're going to be looking at uh, a th the historically consistent hypothesis of, of Mark Antinacci, for example, and Dr. Arthur Lin's work. And, you know, they, they propose a supernatural or an extraordinary slash miraculous mechanism to explain the bloodstains. They vanished magically and then appeared on the shroud and that sort of thing. And we'll get into more details on that. But I just wanted to point out kind of the uh, lack of critical thinking by these Shroud skeptics who just mindlessly assume, well, if the BPA results do prove that the Shroud's bloodstains couldn't have been encoded naturalistically through direct contact, 
uh, or from a real body, that that means they couldn't have been supernaturally transmitted onto the Shroud of Turin in some way from a, from a dead body onto the Shroud cloth in that way. Uh, we don't have to assume that, oh, well, that means that it was artistically formed by painting the bloodstains. And, you know, as we showed in part seven and eight, that's scientifically impossible to be the case anyways, given the Shroud of Turin's features. So basically, um, the Shroud skeptics have shot themselves in the foot here because we know scientifically in part seven and eight that it can't be a painting, traditional painting or artistic mechanism that naturally explains the Shroud's bloodstains. And if this BPA analysis is correct, the Shroud's bloodstains couldn't naturalistically have been formed through direct contact. Well, what do we have left? An extraordinary or supernatural mechanism. And basically, these guys have just proven the resurrection of Christ, if the results are true. Um, given we know that an artistic mechanism can't explain it, painting doesn't work. But that said, let, let's take a look at what they actually did and go into that in a little bit more detail. Is it true that naturalistic direct contact alone can't explain the blood patterns or blood flow patterns that we see on the Shroud of Turin, given a direct contact mechanism? Okay, so first thing to do is, what is, what is it? What was this BPA analysis or uh, blood pattern analysis approach? that these Shroud skeptics applied to the Shroud of Turin. And essentially, um, they utilized s about six experiments to test the Shroud of Turin's blood flows. Now, um, experiments two, three, and four uh, utilized real human blood in, the, in their experiments. And that was added, um, they added citrate or, you know, lemon juice um, or what's called CPD, citrate, phosphate, dextrose, and that served as an anticoagulant on the blood. And they also added in uh, saline uh, adenine glucose mannitol, or SAGM for short, uh, and that served as a preservative in the blood. So they had to add chemicals to this real human blood in order to, you know, try and make it uh, get match what was we find on the Shroud of Turin, because they're you know, if the blood coagulated, then you wouldn't get anything flowing or anything like that. Experiments one, five, and six, on the other hand, used synthetic blood for convenience. And we'll get into more, into more details about that as we go. Experiments uh, th two through six, uh, the blood flow was brought about at a desired location through the transfusion cannula. You know, the volume of blood was controlled uh, by use of a clip, a rolling clip on the tubing there. The scientists in the experiment said, uh, claimed that there was effectively no difference between human blood and the synthetic blood used for these tests. Uh, we'll find out if that's true or a load of horse manure, but uh, this is what they claim in their paper, that there was no difference, so okay. But uh, just, just as a hint, uh, with experiment number five, for example, it, it was proven that the synthetic blood used was just way too runny. It was a, effectively uh, red-colored water, which is nothing with the consistency of Jesus' blood, who would have been in hypovolemic shock at the time after being scourged and crucified and dehydrated and all of that. So um, I think we're going to find out there's some problems here. Synthetic blood, at least in, at the very least in this experiment, was not what the authors call quote-unquote superimposable with the experimental results using real human blood with the anticoagulant and that sort of thing. 
And additionally, because of the amount of the coagulant, anticoagulant used in the real human blood, even those experiments will find out um, was a problem. The, the blood was just much too runny to be anything comparable to what the man in the shroud would have went through as a scourged and crucified victim in hypovolemic shock and would have been dehydrated in that it, uh, the consistency of the blood on a, on a person who would have had the wounds necessary to be transferred to a cloth, nothing comparable to the runny red water that these guys essentially used in their experiments, thereby cheating um, and give, giving results that would be not expected to cohere with what we see on the shroud. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a bit of an assessment. So let, let me get off that. I'm still explaining what these guys did. Okay, so experiment number one was about testing the back of the hand, the little blood flow coming from the back of the hand, the nail wound there, presumably a nail wound from crucifixion. And in order to investigate the shape of the nail wound on the hand, um, as well as those two short rivulets, um, they set up a preliminary test to simulate bleeding in contact with a wood surface basically a circular stain of 0.3 milliliters of synthetic blood was applied onto the back of the hand of a living volunteer. So they were using a human host here. Uh, and this was done to simulate the puncture type injury, pieces of wood with different textures from bark to smooth finishes were pressed onto the hand for about 10 seconds each time. And the resulting pattern observed what did they get? Well, the results were not conclusive. And this is according to the skeptics themselves. They say because the wound is not clearly decipherable, and that by that they mean the location of where the nail entered the hand or palm or arm of, of the shroud man, we just see the exit wound, right? We see the back of the hands, which is the exit where the nail would have exited or whatever object caused that wound exited. Uh, we don't see the entry point. Um, but we know for sh for certain it's not in the palms. But that's what he's talking about here when he's saying the results are not conclusive due to the fact that we don't know where the entry, we can't prove where the entry wound was, like where the nail went in exactly. Um, but yeah, this is this is a huge problem because again, we'll, we'll deal with this in the assessment, but um, this is scientifically proven fact. It's not a medieval fake because the entry, room, entry wound would be visible to be on the palm based on the location of the exit wound, it would have, it can't be in the palm. And that's totally different to the medieval artists of the day. They, none of them, crucifixion was outlawed in Constantine day, Constantine's day. He died in 337 AD. So no crucifixions happened after that in the Roman style. No one would have known how to do it. a historically accurate depiction of a, a Roman crucifixion exit wound on a wrist. Um, the medieval artists wouldn't have known that the wrists were all part of the hand in biblical times, according to Jews. That's they considered the entire wrist and that the quote unquote the hand. Medieval artists were totally ignorant, so they would have just oh hand the palm of the hand. That's what we get in all the pictures. So somehow this genius of a medieval artist got it historically correct that it wasn't the palm of the hands that the nails went through. And additionally, he knew about the fact that the thumbs would retract and be hidden. He didn't depict thumbs. No other medieval artist in history was that much of a genius to depict the thumbs being forced in by the nail, being penetrating their nerve, median nerves or whatever it is, their nerves and that sort of thing. Okay, so yeah, so he, he did this experiment with the blood on the, the back of the hand. 
he did this about four times by pressing different types of wood to the back of that hand, which had blood applied to it for about 10 seconds each. Uh, obviously the wood was then removed and the pattern that of the blood left behind was observed to compare to what we see on the shroud today. Now what's interesting here is that this experiment was evidently done with the hand in a horizontal position on the table. And if that's the case, if it was done horizontally, obviously that's nothing like where Jesus would have, his arms would have and hands would have been in a vertical or semi-vertical position when he was nailed to the cross and that sort of thing. So the blood flows based on a horizontal, you know, putting your hand on the table and then squashing a piece of wood to it would be nothing like what we would have with um, Jesus, where his hand was on a vertical position, nailed or pressed to the cross as he was bleeding. Um, basically what they got in their, the results of their experiments here were that they were vastly different than uh, the vertical hand nailed to a piece of wood with the blood coagulating as it slowly exited from the wound while he was on the cross. Um, so the results in the experiment um, were that the blood really went in all directions universally. It, it was squashed, you know, lying horizontally. You put a piece of wood on top of it and press, it squashes the blood stain out in all directions equally. Um, and this led the authors bafflingly to be confused. I mean, these are scientists. It's obvious, but, but these guys, uh, these shroud skeptics were confused. They said, well, because of this, we were unable to, quote unquote, unable to determine where the nail would have been located. But it, I mean, it, it's just obvious for any, anyone with a functioning brain that in a real crucifixion victim, the, the blood runs down the back of the hand due to gravity when it's nailed in a, on an angle, a vertical angle to a cross. So yeah, the, you know, the location of the nail wound is, is clearly indicated on the shroud man by the top of the blood stain. So yeah. Um, I, I think that's sort of a, a problematic thing in terms of experiment one. So that's kind of an overview of what they did with experiment one. What about experiment number two? And experiment number two, this is where they um, started testing for the forearm, the blood flows down the forearm of the, uh, the shroud man. And here they say, so a ballistic angle finder was used measuring the arm to body or forearm to body angle of a standing subject from zero degrees. So that's where the arm is parallel to the ground, horizontal. Um, and also when it was perpendicular to the body uh, to 90 degrees of a vertical arm. So, you know, like an, a right angle triangle, your arm is, is up, um, you'll see the picture there. And then they tried various, uh, various angles as you'll see in other pictures. Uh, corresponding to positions a, a person would allegedly have their arms when they're crucified and nailed to a cross. Now it's important that the authors, the scientists say that their experiments preclude uh, any notion about there being ropes also, in addition to the nails, also tying the arms uh, to the cross. Obviously that would, they didn't do, their experiments didn't take into account that option uh, just because I guess the gospels don't show that and also the shroud man's blood flows don't seem to be consistent with ropes being tied around Jesus uh, in addition to the nails being there uh, so they didn't bother testing for that type of blood flows um, and they also didn't uh, test at all for the 
a traditional artistic image of a crucifix with his arms stretched out on the crossbeam um, and a position with the arms folded backwards at the elbow uh, and then bent around the crossbeam. Um, you know, for example, this is in the painting of the Mantegna um, Crocificioni uh, in the 15th century. It was made around 1457 to 1459. So if you want to um, see what they're talking about there, they didn't bother uh, testing for that kind of configuration or position on a cross because it's historically inaccurate to Jesus. He wouldn't have been crucified that way by the Romans. And the Shroud Man doesn't seem to be consistent with that type of crucifixion position either so that's just ruled out whether you're pro shroud or shroud skeptic i mean these assumptions are, are granted we will grant that for the sake of argument and finally they also uh tested the uh forearm blood flows by lying down and getting into the position of the shroud man with his arms crossed over his groin and his upraised legs and that sort of thing so this is to simulate his position um, you know, with both arms kind of folded in front of him with his hands crossed over this groin there as depicted on the Shroud Man. So at the time of the body images were formed, that position, and they tested for that uh, as well. Um, now, one thing just to point out very quickly, um, in terms of their experimental process, um, there was a huge issue or problem here because when a cruci crucifixion's victim's feet are nailed to the vertical wood column well then his knees would be positioned well forward of that column this is just common sense so you know in the the up position so to speak you know you, you kind of die by asphyxiation a lot of experts say on crucifixion you have to press up in order to breathe in uh because when you just lie f uh flat or just lie lie there without pressing up you can't breathe um, when you're on a cross. So this is what a lot of experts and medical experts have said when they've tested how crucifixion works. Um, so this probably, if this was the case, this definitely would have been bringing in the middle and upper part of his body forward as well. So his back and his arms would then have been arched backward to nail his hands to the cross, the, the cross being there. So in this position, th this isn't really comparable to what they did in their experiments where they just had somebody standing on on flat-footed on the floor, so to speak. Um, so that's a potential discrepancy between that and the Shroud Man, and might, ex as we get to the assessment, might explain why there were some differences in what they got compared to what we have at the Shroud Man. Their experiments were flawed. We wouldn't expect them to be comparable because he's just standing on the floor doing testing this, whereas the Shroud Man was in a contorted position. He had to like press up and down. In order to breathe on the cross, you know, his, when his feet were nailed in that position. Um, so there's a difference there. Uh, just be aware of that. Okay, so what about experiment number three? So this is uh, what we kind of briefly mentioned before um, when I was talking about experiment two. This is where they tested, okay, now he's lying down in a supine position in the position of the shroud man at the time he was, uh, the body images were formed in the shroud. He's got his arms crossed, folded over his, his uh, crotch or his groin, and, um, uh, you know, his knees uh, slightly upraised, just like we see with the shroud man on the shroud of Turin today. And this uh, was done to test out what uh, pro shroud experts like Barry Schwartz or Frederick T. Zugaby believed, where by they said, well, maybe the body was washed partially or fully. Um, and then the blood stains oozed out, remember, up to four to six hours after death. 
bloodstains can continue to ooze um, and then transfer to the cloth that way. So these experiment, experiments, number three, was kind of uh, testing out this option for how the bloodstains formed on the skin and then transferred to the cloth through direct contact. Additionally, they tested uh, at least three different angles of the table on which this guy was lying on. So, you know, they tested in the first place where the table was placed at three angles. One was horizontal, five degrees clockwise. Um, by And by that, um, we think they meant like five degrees downward at the head. Uh, also, secondly, five degrees counterclockwise. So that's upward at the head. Um, and for each in inclination here, two postures were used. So there is one where the volunteer was just lying flat on the table, and then two where he adopts, as you're seeing on your YouTube video, that this shroud man position, knees up, head forward, uh, arms over the, um, well, the arms were always over the, the groin there, but he, he adopts more of what we see with the rigor mortis shroud man position in, in all of these inclinations. Um, and that was done, obviously, to simulate rigor mortis, as we see with the Shroud Man. So, yeah, so then a small amount of blood was allowed to drip from this the cannula uh, attached at the back of the left hand. And the conclusion of their experiments was that the pattern of blood running off the top of the back of the, the left hand there, it did not match the pattern of rivulets as they appear on the for, uh, left hand and forearm of the Shroud Man. But I mean, again, just kind of as a quick way of assessment, I mean, this is obviously not surprising because it it's obviously usually believed that the left hand and the forearm rivulets, as we see on the Shroud Man, well, those were formed on the body when it was in the vertical, vertical crucifixion position on the cross. It wasn't, these weren't formed when the body was in a supine position. Um, and this, this goes with if you take a partial washing thesis like I do for example I, I think that there is a partial washing but there wasn't a full washing so it wasn't the it's not the case that all the wounds as we see were the result of oozing or that sort of thing after he was put in the shroud um, some of these blood stains were from back when he was up on the cross um, so yeah he, he's these experiments are kind of like an all testing out all or nothing deals. There's no nuance or complication whereby some blood stains were formed at different times and in different positions. You know, not not only that, but when Jesus was being carried to the cross, maybe some blood stains reflect the positions of his body while he was being carried there. So yeah, it's it's not quite as uh, simplistic a scenario as this experiment tests for. It, it's a falsification test at best. Um, at best for only one type of option whereby all the bloodstains were formed while he was in that supine lying down position in the tomb. And uh, most pro shred experts don't go for that. Okay, so moving on, what about experiment number four? So here they went to the same layout as they did with experiment number two, testing the blood flow pattern down the, the hand. And for about four centimeters out, I think it was, they, they wanted to test the angles of the blood flows. And by doing this, these experiments, they kind of concluded that those two short rivulets on the back of the left hand and the Shroud Man um, require about a 45 degree angle during crucifixion at the time these blood things were flowing. 
um, 45 to 50 degree angle. Uh, and that's consistent with what we found. Remember, Pierre Barbet did cr actual experiments crucifying crucifying people um, and that sort of thing and seeing the angles. He got about a 35 degree angle for the arms to be outstretched, outstretched on. These experiments are saying, well, it, it should be about 45 to 50 degrees. And this is consistent with what the pro shroud people have been saying all along. Uh, thank you, science. You've confirmed uh, shroud research. Um, but um, these skeptics are quite sly. So they, they kind of measured that. Um, you know, in, in order, the angle needed to create the blood stains on the forearms, uh, so, you know, that part of the arm between the elbow and the wrist, um, well, in order to get that to match the shroud man, that would have to be a greater than 80 degrees. Um, just so that these two blood stains, the one on the back of the hand and the one on the forearm, um, would have aligned. And, and since they don't, they, they would have had to have formed at different times because they were obviously formed with different angles uh, of vertical of the arms being outstretched. One at 80 degrees when the forearm was formed and one at 45 to 50 degrees. Now, in the first place, there are problems with this. I mean, the quote-unquote different times conclusion here appears really to assume that the two short rivulets on the back of the left hand and the bloodstains on the outside of the forearms uh, came from the same source, the same wound. Um, you know, from namely from that exit wound on the back of the hand when the nail pierced it. Um, that's an unproven assumption of these skeptics. We don't know that necessarily, right? Um, this assumption is just, it's not discussed or proven in any way in this uh, so-called peer-reviewed article. But yeah, they, I mean, beyond this, they, there are several options to explain this alleged inconsistency. I mean, between the two short rivulets on the back of the hand and then the blood flows on the outside of the forearm. So in the first place, look, the blood at about 45 degrees may result from the nail when it was initially pounded through the wrist into the wooden crossbeam uh, called the patabulum. And as the body lay on the ground before the crossbeam was even lifted onto the vertical column to the form, form on the cross. Then the blood on the forearm was formed at the greater than 80 degree angle may result from the blood from the wrists as the body was hanging vertically on the cross. Bada boom, bada bing, you've been destroyed, skeptics. You've never even thought of that, did you? I mean, maybe they were formed at different times, namely the one, the rivulets on the back of the hand, when that nail, he was lying down on the cross and they were first nailing his arms to the cross, those formed. Then they raised the cross and then the blood flows flowed out of that same wound at a greater than 80 degree angle as they... Now it's important to note that despite the claims of these uh, shroud skeptics about it needing to be a greater than 80 degree angle, uh, most world's experts and blood, blood analysis pattern and forensic experts know that the bloodstain evidence has generally been interpreted to indicate that the arm angles for the forearm bloodstains was between about 55 and 65 degrees, uh, not greater than 80 degrees as um, Garlic Shelley and his buddy are saying here. But uh, that leads into another option, you know, because obviously it's generally believed that during crucifixion, the victim, as I said, would be moving up and down on the cross just in order to breathe, prevent himself from asphyxiating and gain some, some wiggle room for his lungs. Um, so by pushing up on his nailed feet and pulling up on his, his nailed wrists, this would allow him to breathe, 
until the mus muscles in his legs became so exhausted that he couldn't do it anymore and then he would die by asphyxiation. So in the resting position, his arms could easily be at the 45 degree angle mark, but in the up position, the angle in the forearm, it becomes much greater as he pulls his body up. In some cases, it's been sh uh, shown to be even greater than 80 degrees, perhaps. So it may be explainable in this way. You know, he was in the down position, the rivulets formed on his hand at a 45 degree angle or, you know, whatever it is, um, 45 to 50 degree angle mark. Then he pushed up to breathe and his uh, arms were at a greater than 80 degree angle or between 55 to 65 as most experts say. But again, even assuming the worst for these skeptics and saying it was greater than 80, well, that's still scientifically proven to be possible um, when he was breathing in the up position. So that would explain the different angles of these blood stains on the forearm versus on the back of the left hand with the two rivulets. Nothing in the scientific article even goes into this uh, historically proven fact or this medically proven fact or addresses this um, and how that can possibly account for the alleged inconsistency that these skeptics give. What's more, here's another one. Here's another option. Now, uh, these shroud skeptics never even considered um, about bleeding from the front side of the nail wounds, the entry wounds, right, in the wrist. That, that was just not considered for these skeptics um, because that's not shown on the shroud man's image. But that doesn't mean that bloodstains present on the shroud couldn't have come from the front side of the nail wounds. So, um, for example, in the crucifixion position, the body may have been in a somewhat bowed out or an arched position, as we kind of mentioned before, due to the nailing of the feet um, to that vertical wood column. It's possible, um, historically plausible, that the crossbeam or this patabellum was not put in a notch in the wood column, but was rather attached to the front surface of the vertical uh, beam. So that, you know, this would mean that the front of the crossbeam was kind of further forward than the front of the vertical column itself. This uh, makes perfect sense because we have zero evidence of vertical abrasions on the back of the shroud man, on the dorsal image. But yet we do have uh, abrasion marks. Again, this isn't a minimal relevant feature, but uh, many pro-shroud and forensic experts have identified abrasion marks on his nose and around his shoulder areas and stuff like that from when he was carrying the crossbeam. So if, if he was moving up and down, breathing on the, the cross and his back was rubbing up and down against the vertical wood column, this would cause abrasions that would be detectable on the shroud man today, but yet they're not there. So this kind of indicates he was kind of pushed forward a bit away from the, ver his back was pushed forward away from the wood of the vertical part of the cross, wood beam of the cross. And if this is the case, you know, if his body was bowed in this way, and when he was up on the cross, it could have caused the arms to be angled out from the cross. And if this is the case, then it might cause the blood from the nail entrance wounds, not the exit wounds, but the entrance wounds at the front of the wrists to drain around the wrists and then down the outside of the forearms as shown on the shroud. So um, really the, the shroud skeptics didn't even consider that maybe the two short rivulets on the back of the left hand and then the bloodstains on the forearms would not have had to have occurred at different times but they could simply just result from different bleeding locations. And that's why they're different. One from the entrance wounds and the other from the exit wounds of the nail around the wrist. 
that didn't even occur to these skeptics. They didn't even think to test for these types of things um, at all. Um, by their own admission. So, so that's a huge glaring uh, problem for the skeptics making their um, unwarranted conclusions against the shroud here based on these different differing angles of the blood wounds. Uh, one final option here to mention is that, well, maybe the two short rivulets of blood at the wrist might result from the process of removing the nails from the wrist or taking the body down from the cross. I kind of hinted at that before. So so yeah, you know, the blood on the forearms might result from the process of removing the nails, for example, from his wrists um, when they were taking his body down. Or maybe it, it kind of massaging the, the shoulders and arms to release the rigor mortis in order to allow his arms to be brought down over his groin. Uh, maybe this resulted in the blood flows on the forearms being what they are in terms of the, the greater than 80 degree angle, allegedly. So yeah, as you can see, um, the experiments in terms of the um, bloodstain, the two rivulets on the back of the left hand as uh, near the wrist, as well as the bloodstain or blood flows down the forearm have not been proven to be inconsistent with what we have with the shroud, man, shroud of Turin and the shroud man on, that, on the, those images there because their experiments are just utterly flawed. In the first place, experiment number one, totally worthless, not in the proper position. Experiment number three, again, falsifies a position that no pro-shred expert really today advocates for in terms of how the specific bloodstains on the forearm and back of the left hand were formed. Uh, everybody admits that came when he was on the cross, not lying in the tomb in a supine position. So one in three, worthless um, in terms of falsifying the direct contact hypothesis. What about experiment two and four, which are linked? You know, the testing the blood flows and the angles of that as well as matching up the angles of the blood flows between the two rivulets on the back of the hand compared to the blood flow on the fo outer forearm uh, one being at a 35 to you know 50 degree 45 to 50 degree angle another to uh, greater than 80 degree angle according to the authors is that a problem no um We've got at least four equally probable explanations as to why the data came out that way. And these Shroud skeptics in their peer-reviewed science journal uh, didn't even bother thinking of how to test or how to falsify for that. So their all four of these experiments testing the bloodstains on the wrist and forearm uh, completely worthless. We cannot rule out even a naturalistic direct contact thesis on this basis. Um, not to mention the fact that, remember, the blood they were using was essentially so watered down. It was essentially red-colored water. Uh, it was way too runny. That it was nothing to do with what the blood would have, the consistency of the blood of the Shroud Man, whoever he was, whether you think he was crucified or not, no matter what, he was damaged if we're positing an ordinary naturalistic direct contact mechanism here. And he, he would have been in hypovolemic shock. He would have been dehydrated i mean from all these wounds that created the blood stains um there's no way um the blood that they used would have been consistent with the blood of the shroud man as we can just see depicted from his wounds on the shroud trin who cares whether that's jesus or whether you want to say he actually was crucified or not what whatever happened to this guy um dear goodness sakes uh those those the wounds prove that we know scientifically the blood would not be consistent with what they were using as blood in their experiments. So 
total failure. Um, sorry, skeptics. You'll have to try again better uh, next time. And guess what? They're not done. They've got two more experiments, so they're going to try. And the, these are on different blood stains. The chest wound, that uh, blood stain that separates blood and water in the Gospel of John where he was stabbed. Jesus was stabbed through the heart to prove that he was dead by that Roman centurion. We have that blood flow uh, proven on the Shroud of Turin itself. Um, but these shroud skeptics want to take that away from Christians. So they want to say, well, there's no way that stain could have been formed um, through direct contact because uh, we tested it out and our results were inconsistent with what we find, the blood flows we find on the Shroud of Turin. So let's get into the final two experiments, experiment five and six. And uh, what did they do here on this front? Okay, so experiment number five focused specifically on the chest wound. And... Essentially, in their own words, what they did for this is uh, they took a, uh, tested the, the spear wound on the chest by taking a sponge with the same dimensions, about 6.5 centimeters by 2.5 centimeters by 3.5 centimeters, um, as the wound, and then attached that to a long handle. And that was soaked in synthetic blood here, not real human blood for this test. And then they attached that to the corresponding era, er, area on a mannequin. So they didn't use a human body. They used a mannequin torso. When the mannequin was in a standing, vertical standing position, vertical rivulets flow only on the front of the torso, not the back, in a direction that is congruent, they admit is congruent with the shroud image. And uh, they say that their findings seem to be consistent with the general interpretation of the man in the shroud being pierced with a spear while he was hanging from the cross. Uh, however, they, they add this caveat that rivulets obtained during the experiment run independently without creating a large filled stain as, you know, as a single solid filled stain as seen in the shroud. This is what the, the skeptics say. Now, obviously, this has problems. Number one, they're using a mannequin. That's not going to be consistent with human skin, uh, especially the condition that Jesus was in. Again, the blood, the synthetic blood they used was just runny water, red-colored water. It was not consistent with the blood at all. So in, in a sense, it is amazing that it matched the shroud, in general, matched the shroud's blood stains to some degree. Um, but again, that there was that difference that they got where it wasn't just one solid blood filled in blood stain as they say this is really the achilles heel of, of this experiment it's just totally irrelevant because the blood's not consistent um but then they come to experiment number six and this one is interesting this is where the it's again the chest wound but they're testing the dorsal side image the lumbar region of the back the blood stains along the lower back of the shroud man and it was Use, they used the same process as they did in experiment number five, got a sponge, bloodied, put it on a little stick, and jabbed it into a mannequin torso. But this time the mannequin torso was lying flat on the surface and covered with fabric. So the experiment was repeated uh, after the surface on which it was lying uh, had been tilted about five degrees, both clockwise and counterclockwise. So they... they Tested based on three degrees of inclination, right? Five clockwise, zero degrees, and then count five degrees counterclockwise. And the rivulets from the chest wound flowed sideways and um, posteriorly to the sepular region, uh, where they just created this single large pool 
which was then absorbed by the fabric and and of course the corresponding uh, imprint on the body so yeah the general pattern is in the author in these uh, skeptical scientists words is quote unquote therefore rather different from the shroud of turin where it is possible to rec recognize the so-called quote unquote blood belt as uh, multiple winding lines across the lumbar region they don't the shroud of turin or the shroud man's dorsal image doesn't present this just single solid uh, blood pool that the scientific experiments got the skeptics got with their experiments um the shroud man has this blood belt as experts call it but once again it the f problems with this it just was with experiment five i mean this is just ridiculous if you're a scientist no one would believe that this is an accurate representation of what would happen to the shroud man and therefore you can't use it falsify again the viscosity of the blood is all wrong it's just runny water um, and of course we would expect that to just run down the side and then pool uh, onto the shroud but that's not what happened with a real human being a bloodied human being in that case they had the wrong blood flow rate um, they used a plastic uh, mannequin torso instead of actual human skin um, no arms were were there to be in contact with the body torso and help to redirect blood flows there was just no uh process in this sign alleged test or falsification test to try and uh, explain how the arms might contact with the body torso and redirect blood flow there um so there's lots of problems just in general um yeah let let, let me get into some some degree of assessment in terms of the this experiment and various explanations as to why there is a difference here okay so the first option um might be well look the front image on the shroud shows that while the body was on the cross the blood flowed vertically down from the side wound but then when the body was placed into the tomb on a horizontal orientation the blood ran down the side of the lower chest so yeah the the area just below the patches next to the side wound appears to show that the blood flowed down the chest several centimeters below the spear entrance location so that's what we see on the shroud man and you know this may have been caused by the blood that initially exited the wound while he was up on the cross having dried while the blood was still on, still on the cross while the body was still on the cross um, then all of a sudden it was redirected um, the subsequent blood was redirected probably including um, other body liquids right the the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John it wasn't just blood it was blood and water when this happened so this kind of caused it to f the subsequent blood flow to flow around the lower chest well below the location of the side wound um, this is just due to the normal curvature of the lumbar region um, of the back also additionally the skin would probably not have been in contact with the cloth below the body at this time so you know therefore the blood could could flow across the lower back just like we see with the shroud man um so yeah the, the blood stain on the dorsal image um is really in good agreement with this kind of scenario so there is no inconsistency the shroud skeptics just lack any and all imagination they're not uh conceiving of realistic scenarios uh, they're just desperate to reject the shroud evidence no matter what um, they're probably getting uh, as Barry Schwartz has mentioned that you know these atheists get paid money anonymously behind the scenes to falsify the shroud so they're not they're not doing true science they're not interested in the truth they're they're wanting to they have an agenda they just want to falsify it it seems no matter what they're, they're not 
trying to think up of these various scenarios. But that's not all. What, what about, think about this. The experiment for the body in a horizontal position, as in experiment number six, um, this was d done using a plastic mannequin without arms. But the shroud, the shroud man clearly had arms. So imagine those on the front side of the body with the hands joined over the groin. Um, well, if this was the configuration, then the arms might have redirected some of the blood and watery fluid uh, toward the lower back, just as we see with the shroud man. Perfectly consistent. This wasn't even considered by the shroud skeptics. Um, additionally, another uh, bunch of different problems and things to think about, but examination of the blood stains on both sides of the lower back may indicate that the source of the blood was coming from both sides of the body. So this is kind of similar with the hand wound. It's, uh, it's not just from the side wound itself. Now you might ask, you know, what, what on earth could cause this or something? Well, think about it. Per perhaps this blood was coming from the front, the entrance wound of the spear um, in the wrists, and then running down the inside of the forearms, you know, the, the sides that are not visible on the shroud as well, and, the, and then dripping off the elbows. So this may have happened during the massaging of the sh shoulders in order to release it from rigor mortis and put it into the burial position. In the process of, of bringing the arms down to cover the, that groin area, then maybe some of the blood got on that way. Um, it also may have happened while the body lay in the tomb. So yeah, there, there's some, some options there, right? Because res residual rigor mortis... Um, could have kept the forearms sufficiently above the body to allow the blood to run down the, the inside of the forearms there until it dripped down from the elbows. So, yeah, that, that's an option these skeptics didn't even consider. Additionally, the, the blood flow on the lower back could have been caused by symmetrical injuries on both sides of the body, in the, in the kidney areas, for example, um, due to the severe scourging that this person, the shroud man, obviously underwent. Um, and as we know, Jesus just happened to go under that, uh, undergo that as well. A few more things to mention. And remember, the, that backward bowed posture that we see the shroud man, the body, the arch of the back um, that he would have been in while on the cross, that, that too could have allowed blood to flow from the side wound, side wound to the lower back. Uh, and that's been scientifically documented as well. Another option, so, some um, pro shroud guys have suggested that there is evidence that a loincloth was possibly held in place uh, by a belt wrapped around the waist of the shroud man. So during crucifixion, this might have caused some blood to flow along that belt, the belt to the lower back if he was wearing this kind of loincloth while he was up there. And obviously, you know, this blood could have come from blood dripping down the, the outside of the forearms, dripping off the elbows, and on, then onto the lower back. And due to the curvature of the body, uh, again, it would create this, the shroud man blood stains going across the lower back, unlike what we see just dripping off into a large, single large pool, um, as was seen in experiment number six in the sh uh, shroud skeptics. Uh, experimentation here. Um, one last point to mention about this is, look, blood flow onto the lower back 
may have occurred during the process of removing the body from the cross. There's there's also this thing when when they were transporting the body to the tomb or or burying the body in the tomb. You know, we we don't know. We we don't fully understand all of the processes that were involved with the shroud man's body when putting him into the shroud. So it's it's a scientifically proven fact that corpses can and do bleed spontaneously from their wounds hours after the fact but corpses will also bleed much more if they're mobilized or they're moved in some way um, there have actually been some researchers who believe that the blood stain in the lower region of the back probably occurred when the body was placed onto the shroud and one reason for this is because that the the blood stains seem to show directionality so to speak they, they have oh the blood was you can almost see the blood was flowing this direction you know there was a there was a relative displacement between the body and the shroud there and that's displayed by this directionality that's apparent um so yeah we there's just lots of options that these uh, shroud skeptics again in their short-sightedness and desperation to disprove the shroud they didn't even consider or account for or test for these other equally probable or plausible scenarios that are live options and could have happened historically to the Shroud Man and would therefore explain why the Shroud's man, Shroud Man's blood flows on the back and chest wound are, are different than what they got in their experiments. Their experiments were inadequate to falsify the direct contact hypothesis, even and as an ordinary naturalistic mechanism, direct contact alone and the laws of nature, they can explain these blood flows. Nothing in the BPA analysis is able to, to falsify that. So this is just an utter failure. Um, that said, it, it is respectable. I mean, these guys did do scientific experiments that they have empirical findings and evidence that do need to be grappled with, and they do shed some light on things that wouldn't have worked and and give us uh, some kind of progress in terms of understanding how the shroud man's blood flow images uh, might have been formed or couldn't have been formed through naturalistic direct contact mechanisms um, so it's not totally where i won't i don't want to say oh it's totally irrelevant or worthless um, it's only worthless in the sense that we can't really falsify an ordinary naturalistic mechanism of direct contact in accounting for the bloodstains based on uh, the shroud man's bloodstains being inconsistent or different than the blood flow patterns uh, exhibited in these scientific experiments. You, you just can't make that conclusion. You're totally unwarranted and illogical and irrational if you even attempt to do that. So yeah, just to wrap up um, our overall assessment and summarize kind of our, our assessment and evaluation of these blood flow pattern or blood pattern analysis experiments and what we can glean from them. And here are some of the problems with it. So problem number one, we mentioned straight from the beginning is look, the synthetic blood and or even the human blood that was used in all of these experiments um, containing this anticoagulant and or preservatives would simply not have had the same viscosity or flow uh, behavior as real human blood without an anticoagulant or dilution um, coming from a natural human body. It would not have accurately re reflected a, a hum the blood flow of a human being in the state that we can scientifically observe the shroud man would have been in if he was a real human corpse and he had these injuries and 
the bloods were the blood was flowing uh, from real life injuries in this way. Yeah, the, the blood used in the experiments appears to be much too runny, as Mark Antonacci says. Um, it's it's essentially uh, red color, red uh, water, red bloody water. Um, is that's the viscosity of it, and that's just yeah, it's just way too fluid to be of any significance. Secondly, uh, the blood flow on human skin. The fact that they would use a mannequin, that's totally irrelevant. I mean, human skin has many differences from a plastic skin mannequin that make a difference in terms of how the blood would flow on skin. I mean, skin's got pores, it's got hair, it's got wrinkles, uh, and swelling as well. He was injured. We've got proof of swelling on the Shroud Man, evidence of swelling in that. And that would all affect, uh, not to mention products on him, like sweat, dirt, dried blood products. Um, these would all affect the blood flow pattern that we would see. And it would definitely, we wouldn't expect it to be the same as the blood flow pattern on a clean, smooth, pristine, plastic mannequin torso. Ridiculous, skeptics. Ridiculous. If you think that this is in any way comparable. I mean, come on. You're, you're supposed to be scientists here, right? Um, and this should, this especially is the point, applies to the point at which the blood would flow off, uh, flow or drip off skin compared to plastic. There, there's a demonstrated difference um, on that front too. Okay, next up, the, the blood flow rates were not the same. The rate at which the blood was flowing would not have been the same either. So, you know, for example, in the experiments, they compress, experiments five and six, they compress a sponge onto the side of the plastic mannequin and with the blood containing the anticoagulant and the preservative well that would just not produce the same flow rate as a spear thrust into the side of a dead man with you know the blood not containing any anticoagulant or preservatives at all or at the very least not to the same degree that these guys have put in so that's a major problem Additionally, the, the angles of the blood flows were simply not correct. You know, a, a hand in experiment one, remember the hand was flat on the table horizontally. That does not simulate a hand in a vertical position at all. It's experiment one is worthless, throw it out. And a person standing up, remember the person in one of the experiments was just standing up in experiment two and four, they were just standing flat in the floor. This probably doesn't simulate the shape of a person's body during crucifixion, where their feet would have been nailed and they would have been kind of bowed out with their arch in their back uh, away from the cross, sticking away from the cross to some extent. Next, regarding the nail through the wrist. Uh, remember, we found that only blood flow from the back or exit wound was even considered in these experiments, and they don't consider the entry wound or blood flow from the entrance of the nail wound playing a role on the bloodstains encoded on the shroud at all. Major mistake, skeptics. That That's a major mistake right there. They should have considered that and taken that into account when they were testing whether it was possible or plausible for this mechanism to work. Another thing is uh, the plastic mannequin, uh, the torso there, again, had no arms. Remember, that was a huge uh, factor. You know, that, that would definitely when he was in the the shroudman was in the horizontal position he had bare arms next to the side wound this would interact with the torso body torso and that could affect blood flow from the side wound for example and that was not tested for at all in these experiments utter failure 
Next up, uh, the scientific experiments were only performed on the blood flow from the back of the left hand and from the side wound. Those are the only two blood flows that they tested for and tried to compare. They didn't, let alone all of the hundreds of other blood stains and scourge wounds on the shroud. They only tried to reproduce two. You know, experiments that were not performed on blood flow from the front of the left hand, the head, the feet, or the scourge marks on the back and front of the man's torso. You know, how we can't make this conclusion. They have no idea how it would perform on these other marks and that sort of thing. And then final, final point here is that the alleged discrepancies assume that the blood stains um, that show that the forearm were due to bleeding from the back uh, exit wounds at the wrist and that the blood stains on the lower back were due to bleeding from the side wound. Um, there is no evidence, zero zip doodah, uh, zippity doodah evidence given for this. It's just an assumption on the skeptic's part. But if these assumptions are not valid, then they basically have no basis for claiming any discrepancies at all. Throw their experiments in the garbage. They're irrelevant to disproving the Shroud of Turin in any way. You know, the, like we said, we went over various possible options for differing sources for different blood flows. Maybe entrance versus exit wounds and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I think that these are pretty serious critiques as to... Um, the results that they got. Let me just take a quick scan of Mark Antinacci's article and see if uh, he has something that I missed here. Yeah, so uh, so Mark, uh, in his counter article, which is on my blog, he, he also mentions, don't forget the motion of the body while it's on the cross, affecting blood flows, you know, breathing in and out, pushing up and down, uh, creating different angles of blood flow as he was trying to breathe and not die from asphyxiation, as all medical experts, a lot of medical experts say is how you died when you were crucified, ultimately. When you lost the strength to push yourself up and breathe in, you died from asphyxiation. Another good point that Mark Antinacci raises that um, wasn't in Bob Rucker's um, thing is, uh, article here is that there there is, the shroud skeptics made a point that there's a gap in the blood flows between the wrist and the lower forearm uh, for the man of the shroud, man in the shroud. Yeah, I mean, so what? Are, are you serious? You think that this is a good point? Uh, these are, again, these are supposedly scientists who should know better. I mean, everyone who looks at the full-length frontal image can tell that the man's uh, barriers have intentionally placed his hands to cross over his groin, just as Jewish, first-century Jewish tradition says you should, to cover up his modesty. So, yeah, obviously they grabbed his hands and massaged his shoulder and then grabbed his hands and brought them back down from the position in which he died on the cross to cover over his groin area for burial. This gap area is, is totally explainable with an ordinary naturalistic direct contact thesis. I mean, yeah, they would have had to grab it, his hands, which were in rigor mortis, and force them to be lowered into that position and to stick them there by the time he was buried. Um, so, so yeah, this, this gap in the blood flows, uh, I'm just shocked that the shroud skeptics think like, ah, oh, see, this proves it couldn't have been direct. No, this, this proves it is direct contact. A, a medieval painter would never paint a gap in his blood flow. He would just be so dumb. He would paint it all the way through. But because it, it covered a real human body, then, okay, they had to grab his arm and that kind of wiped away some of the blood as they were lowering it into position. Yeah, that, that's an additional point that Mark makes, uh, Ant Mark Antinacci makes in his article that I think is good. 
Another last uh, point that Mark Antonacci brings up um, that uh, Bob didn't bring up in his article is, look, uh, it, it's kind of going back to the uh, the uh, Shroud skeptics' inability to duplicate or even understand the presence of the horizontal blood flows across the small of the back. So this is experiment number six. Um, and this is, uh, Mark says, well, th look, this contributes to their erroneous conclusions regarding the blood in the shroud. And uh, Mark mentions this interesting uh, time. He asked STIRP scientist Dr. Don Lin, one of the world's experts, uh, to kind of explain the horizontal flow across the low of the, the back of the man in the shroud. And he explained that STIRP scientists actually did scientifically proven experiments whereby they poured um, water, which, okay, so great. So that's comparable to their runny blood, right? down the right side of a young man who was voluntarily suspended in the vertical position that the man in the shroud appeared to be in when he died on the cross. Dr. Lin said that the water not only ran down the front of the volunteer's right side, but that it also curved when it got to the narrower, lower part of the front hip and went around his bowed out, bowed out lower back or arched lower back. So this is a scientific experiment proving the opposite of these skeptics, saying that it does, if you put them in the proper position, as the Shroudman depicts on the cross, then it does create this blood belt that's seen on the Shroud Man, um, and doesn't, uh, and falsifies these irrelevant experiments as being meaningless compared to the Shroud Man. Um, now obviously with that, he makes this cautionary note, look, well, no one can say for certain how the po post Mortem fluids ran across the lower back of the man in the shroud. Nevertheless, Stirp's experiment here indicates that it could have happened and shows us how it could have happened while the man was in the vertical position. So, yeah, I think that's uh, something to mention right there. We've got sci Stirp scientists, have, credible Stirp scientists, have done scientific experiments of their own proving that actually these results aren't true and that blood flow patterns representative and consistent with what we see on the Shroud of Turin are in fact possible, not only can happen, but do happen in real life. So that's kind of devastating for these Shroud skeptics using the BPA analysis to say, oh, the Shroud's a fake. Um, so yeah, that's it. Um, that's all I can see here. So my ultimate conclusion, look, I'm not biased. I, I don't believe in the direct contact hypothesis for explaining the Shroud's bloodstains, right? I, I don't believe that an ordinary naturalistic mechanism can explain it, or at least I think it's improbable. I'm about 55%. When we get to my conclusions, I'll, I'll let you guys know that. But just I'm about 55 to 60% convinced that I think it's improbable that ordinary uh, naturalistic direct contact mechanisms alone without any supernatural or extraordinary mechanisms being involved could explain the the shroud of Turin's bloodstains overall and i kind of covered that in in part 13 when i went over the direct contact hypothesis and i'll go over it again um, when i do my overall conclusion for criterion b um, so i don't have a bias in the game here I, i'm not someone that needs to uh, say that, well, direct contact naturally has to explain it. Otherwise, it was a paint, the bloodstains must have been painted and artistically formed. No, I, I go for a third option, the supernatural or the extraordinary mechanism option in explaining the bloodstains. But nevertheless, um, as a neutral observer, it seems obvious that the Shroud skeptics 
haven't done what they said they, they've done. They haven't disproven that natural direct contact uh, can explain the blood flow patterns that we see on the Shroud of Turin. And that's disappointing to me as a Christian because I, I wanted them to succeed. If they succeeded in this way, if they actually falsified that the blood could have been encoded through direct contact in these experiments, and given that I've falsified that artistic painting techniques or anything, artistic methods can create the bloodstains, then that would be absolute proof that a miracle took place in forming the bloodstain. So I wanted these guys to su succeed. It would be better for my argument if they had. But unfortunately, I, I do think that, you know, pro shroud experts that take a, you know, people like Barry Schwartz and, uh, uh, Ray Rogers and, and ones that think along they, those lines. They're not Christians. They don't think it was formed miraculously, um, but they do think it belonged to Jesus and it was Jesus' bloodstains on the shroud and it, it got there through direct contact. Um, I don't think we can rule out that Barry Schwartz, the Barry Schwartzes of the world are, are correct, at least not on the basis of these BPA experiments that were done. And I wish we could have. Like I said, I wish we could have because then I could say, aha, direct contact doesn't do it. We've got experimental proof. Thanks, skeptics. And likewise, we've got absolute proof that artistic techniques can't explain the bloodstains either. Voila, miracle. Um, you know, my job would have been done. I, I could have just cited um, shroud skeptics that uh, go against the artistic techniques against them. And then I could have cited the artistic shroud skeptics against the, you know, these BPA experiments against the direct contactors. Um, and my job was done, but unfortunately it didn't work out that way. So, so yeah, that's my take on this. It's, it's a failure. I, I, I don't include this in my minimal relevant features approach as a counter feature because it doesn't fit that criterion. The, the BPA analysis, the experiments don't provide me with more evidence on a balance of probabilities. You know, it's not 51% or more probable direct contact can't explain these and, and or that um, a body wasn't involved in the formation of the shrouds, bloodstains or something like that as these guys want to claim. And because it's imp their claims are improbable given the evidence, um, I can't include it as a counter feature in my minimal relevant features approach. Um, as you, as you remember, I, I have strict standards. So when it's a positive MRF, an MRF, minimal relevant feature that supports my argument for the miraculous nature of the images, it's got to meet the true, it's got to be have strong evidence uh, in favor of it, proving it's true on a balance of probabilities or more. Um, and also, additionally, there has to be a consensus whereby two thirds of the shroud scholars and experts accept it as an undisputed fact. With the count, I also include the counter features to prevent against selection bias, and there I have lesser standards. The consensus is irrelevant to me um, of shroud experts. All that matters to me is, look, does the evidence prove this is true on a balance of probabilities? And if it does, um, then I include it. Um, I include it in my, uh, or, or at the very, even 50-50, I would include it in my minimal relevant features approach to hurt my argument for the Shroud's miraculous nature. But unfortunately, these BPA experiments and the conclusions from them don't meet that threshold. I mean, it's very improbable to my mind that these experiments do anything to disprove a direct contact thesis or prove that they must have been artistically formed or anything like that. So uh, utter failure and dismissed. Uh, that's it for that. 
Okay, cool. Uh, just before we go, um, I do want to just kind of recap some of the things I said in my direct part 13 show about direct contact and uh, about the blood stains. I wasn't able to show pictures and that sort of thing. So I want to show like, because I was in a rush, I, I didn't have time to edit the video and put in kind of helpful visual images. And I think that would have really helped you guys with what I was trying to say a bit. Um, so I'm going to just do a quick uh, thing now and just post up some pictures and explain what I'm saying. But before I get into the blood stains and showing pictures, uh, one thing I wanted to correct from part 13 was when I was talking about the three minimal relevant feature number three, how does direct contact mechanisms work in terms of forming the three dimensional body images? And um, I don't know, maybe I was drunk or, or something like that. I have no idea what was going on, but whatever I was rambling on about, I was talking more about like the full length continuous body images, which is part of minimal relevant feature number four, uh, not really the three dimensional aspect. So I, that was totally up to lunch. What, what I was trying to say is that direct contact mechanisms naturally can't explain the three dimensional nature because it's an all or nothing deal. Just like when we looked at uh, some of the artistic mechanisms like powder rubbing on a bas relief or statue or something like that, these mechanisms are all or nothing. You get ones or zeros in terms of image, right? So, And they're all the same density or darkness. So the shroud's three-dimensionality is created by variations in the light to dark or the image color density that we have. And you know, so the tip of the nose, parts of the body that were closest to the cloth at the time of the encodation, they're the darkest. They have the highest image density. Whereas the further away the body part was at the time of encodation, it's lighter in color. It's less dark. It's lighter uh, or less dense in coloring. And that's what I was trying to say is that what we have with the shroud of terrain is that there are variations or gradations in this lightness to darkness densities. And these correlate topographically to body to cloth distance at the time of encodation. And that's why we have these three-dimensional images that everyone admits is a scientifically proven fact. It's a minimal relevant feature. If it was a direct contact mechanism, however, we wouldn't get these fine gradations or variate fine variations in lightness or darkness. Um, and one thing I should say just so you're not confused, rem remember body image uniformity as well. I'm not denying that with the three dimensionality. So if you remember in parts four, in part four of my shroud series, when I explained three dimensionality and body un image uniformity. So every individual fibrille is colored to the exact same degree. One isn't more colored than another. But so what is it that makes the tip of the nose darker than the top of the cheek? the lower cheek or something like that. Well, it's because that there's more, the density of colored fibrils in that area is higher than in other areas. And that's what creates this darker and lighter, darker and lighter uh, areas that represents topographical information in terms of body to cloth dis distances of that body part. With that, so with that said, um, with a direct contact mechanism, look, it's all or nothing. It, you're either touching it Everything will be colored the exact same, whether they're touching it. Uh, if there's, if it's a non-contact zone, then it's zero color, nothing. You wouldn't get fine gradations whereby certain parts are darker, then slightly less dark, and then slightly, slightly less, lesser and lesser dark until you get to the lightest thing based on the furthest body part. 
And look, even if you did somehow come up with some way to get darker and variations in darker and lighter images, maybe there's more sweat in one area of the body or something. I, I don't know how you would explain that or something. And it definitely would, wouldn't lead to body image uniformity if that was the case. But let's just say on the three-dimensional, somehow you can get variations in de color density or something like that it would still be impossible to get those color densities to correlate precisely to body-to-cloth distances to convey true topographical or three-dimensional information onto the Shroud Man. Um, you wouldn't get that correlation. Yeah, number one, uh, it, it would be impossible to get uh, variations in colors uh, while preserving body image uniformity. You would just have this all-or-nothing result or effect. Uh, which would con wouldn't convey 3D info, but even if you did somehow come up with a way to get variations in color density, there's no way that that you could get through a direct contact mechanism get that to correlate to three to topographical information in terms of body to cloth distance information being encoded on the shroud. So it's just scientifically impossible for direct contact to work here. But yet. The Shroud of Turin does have this gradation in light to dark, um, light to dark image density, uh, colors, and that sort of thing, and that's what gives us that topographical information to do body to cloth distances and create the three dimensional images. That's impossible to occur with direct contact mechanisms. So that's what I was trying to say there, if that makes sense. Um, okay, great. So. Just a couple things about the blood stains that I covered in part 13. Uh, just wanted to go over some, some pictures that I was talking about there and give you kind of visual images of what I was talking about because it was a lot of talking without any helpful illustrations. So let's, let's do that right now. Okay, so the first picture that I, I'm posting up here for you guys is um, basically just showing that you know, I was talking about how the bloodstains are in pristine condition. They, they actually, um, for the most, uh, by and large, show up in the actual form, shape, size, and location as they would uh, congeal on human skin if they flowed on and congealed onto human skin. So this, you can kind of make out those blood flow patterns and the shapes and just kind of get a sense of, you know, there's no evidence of smearing, damage, alteration, or that sort of thing on it. Um, on these things so that's what I wanted you guys to see in this part the next picture you can see this is the chest wound so you can see the front image and then there's on the reverse so this shows how the bloodstains are embedded in the cloth they soaked down and they show up in the same size and shape um, on the other side reverse side of the cloth uh, so this proves that it must have been transferred as a liquid because it's soaked right through from the front side to the to the back side there. The next uh, picture that I want you guys to see here, so this is of the small, this is on the dorsal side image. It's the small of the back, that that uh, blood belt that we kind of mentioned there. And you can see the horizontal flow of the blood belt. And this is on the arched small on the back, small of the back. Given the shroud man's position in rigor mortis, this is a non-contact area. It would not be making direct contact with the shroud. And yet you can see from the image, it show, it's in, embedded into the cloth. It shows up on the reverse side in the same shape and size on the reverse side of the cloth, meaning it was a liquid and it was entrenched in there. And like I said, this is problematic for direct contact. How did this bloodstain get encoded when it wouldn't have been touching a naturally draped cloth? It, the back would have been arched 
up and away given the position of the pointed toes down and uh, one knee kind of knees kind of bent up a little bit. Uh, this wouldn't be touched touching uh, the small of the back unless some kind of pressure tied you tied the body to it or something like that and forced the the cloth to touch the small of the back thereby encoding this through direct contact. But if that were to happen, wouldn't there be some kind of smearing that would take place or alteration of the blood stains that would be evident? These look pristine. Um, they don't look like they've been smudged or uh, fudged or, at all in, in any way or altered or damaged in any kind of way. Um, and pressure would do that, if, especially if this was pressed. Um, just again, think of a blood wound and you put a bandaid and you put pressure there, you get a bloody blob. You don't get distinct pristine blood stains in these, uh, non-contact areas. And by, to make them contact areas, you have to apply pressure and then you get that bloody blob, indistinct blob or some kind of smearing, some kind of alteration or damage that would be evident. Um, the next picture is just, uh, a quick picture of the back of the man's head. I mentioned there's about 20 distinct blood flows that have been counted on the shroud man the back of the shroud man's head with the crown of thorns this is just a quick picture of that but yeah you guys can look at that later on okay so the, the next picture is kind of giving you a little bit of details uh so this is on plastic uh it's a drop of human blood showing the clotting process on a piece of clear plastic as was done in the experiments of pierre barbette before and that sort of thing so Basically, in the upper left, you can see what the blood looked like when it was immediately taken after it was placed onto the plastic sheet. You can see pictures were taken every two minutes after that. After about 10 minutes, on the lower right, this is about 10 minutes later, This is you can see the clotting, the upraised edges around slightly darker perimeter around the blood clot there and the up the upraised edges so this is on plastic this is what blood does within 10 minutes it's dry um it won't transfer onto cloths or stuff like that but gives you an idea of the clotting process the next picture that you're seeing so now we're going on to human skin and showing the process there uh, so in the top left that's when it was immediately placed on uh, the drop of blood was immediately you know they used a pin to prick the tip of the finger so that's what we're looking at here and then by the bottom right, it's fully dried, it's congealed. Uh, there's slightly upraised edges and you can see the wrinkling of the skin as, as it's shrinking in, uh, spouting out the serum retraction rings, the serum from the blood, which leaves the serum retraction rings and that pulls the skin and wrinkles it a bit. You can see the upraised edges there. Um, looks like a slightly darker perimeter. Uh, but pictures in this thing were taken every minute up until 11 minutes afterwards, the blood was fully dry, wouldn't transfer, won't transfer to a cloth. So within 11 minutes, the blood clots wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be transferable. Okay, so the next picture that we're gonna look at is blood on linen. And this is just normal blood, uncoagulated. So you, this is talking about the enduring redness counter feature of the Shroud of Turin. So, in the show, uh, on direct contact, I mentioned that one of the problems is this enduring redness. Blood will turn dark black, brown, brown or black over time. And you can see in this picture, so here's when it's at 49 seconds after it's dropped on linen, it's bright, bright red. Um, and then as we go, it starts turning darker and darker col in color. 
And then here's this picture where it's like really brown. This is 63 days later, it's totally brown and black. But yet the shrouded terrain is centuries old and it's still the blood is still red. It's not brown or dark brown or black as we would expect. Um, and that requires explanation. Um, now they did find in their other experiments that adding an anticoagulant does provide more of a reddish tint. So that lasts longer, that reddish tint but it's still not to the same degree as we find with the Shroud of Turin, which has a, a carmine, or carmine or carmine coloring to it, kind of a purplish red color to it. Okay, so the next image that you're looking at, so these are with painted images. You can see that, especially the one on the left, there's like that dark perimeter uh, with a big brush, whereas with a smaller brush, it doesn't have the dark perimeters. Um, so you can see that in these images. It's also hard to create uh, like on the two left ones, they're kind of blobby and indistinct. And so you can see they had trouble uh, producing well-crafted images like we see with the Shroud's pristine bloodstains. Whereas when they used a smaller brush, okay, they could get better shapes and, and stuff like that. But uh, as I mentioned on the show, they lack that dark perimeter or border around it when they use the smaller brush. So. There is that trade-off there, you know, using a smaller brush and those techniques, you're able to get more definable images comparable to the Shroud, but they don't have the dark perimeters around the bloodstains like the Shroud of Turin does. The Shroud's bloodstains do. Whereas if you use a larger brush, you get these indefinable blobs or, you know, the, they're not really definable shapes or like the Shroud's bloodstains in pristine condition as it flowed and congealed on human skin. But you do get these darker perimeters around, just like we have with the Shroud of Turin. So that's an interesting contrast there. Depending on what technique you use, there seems to be a trade-off. You can't get both like we have with the Shroud of Turin. And that's um, evident on the, the picture that you were looking at. The next image shows the blood, uh, when it has an anticoagulant in it, it's it cracks and that sort of thing. And that might support a skeptic. If, if you say that, um, Jesus's clotting factors were depleted during his time, scourging and crucifixion. So that's why what he, that's why we put the anticoagulant in to uh, kind of mimic Jesus's uh, coagulation, blood coagulation process, be, or clotting factors were diminished or depleted to some extent because of what he'd been through. Well, if that was the case, then maybe the case the blood was kind of cracking like this, and that could help to explain why some of it flaked off over the centuries and or perhaps all of it in that sort of thing, as a lot of people would say. But uh, again, I find that problematic to say that it all left, it flaked off. All right, so the next picture that you guys are going to be looking at is from the experiments uh, of di testing direct contact specifically. And this is where they put uh, pig's blood um, onto a human being, a human skin down the inner part of his arm and then the linen was pressed lightly onto the skin about 30 minutes after the blood was put on the arm. And when they did this in the first round, the picture that you're seeing here, the blood was totally dry. No transfer took place. And they say this was surprising because the air temperature was only 7.2 degrees Celsius, or if you're an American, 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and there was only a slight breeze. So this was shocking that 
you know, no transfer was able to happen at the 30-minute mark. So you can see that the picture you're looking at here first is his arm at the 15-minute mark. Uh, one thing I will say, with the 30 minutes, so it was completely dry on human skin. S some blood droplets on hum the human hairs were still a little wet, um, even after 30 minutes. So understand that. that. So that could be some smearing or leading to some alteration or that sort of thing in, in the bloodstains we eat. We see, yet that's not evident on the Shroud of Turin. Um, so yeah, here, here's going with the same experiments. You can see the arm after 30 minutes is totally dry to the touch. Um, it's not transferred, it's, um, it's clotted and that sort of thing. It won't transfer to the linen. And also in the next picture, uh, so this is really important. Remember, this shows the wrinkling. As the blood clots, it grabs the skin. It, as it spews out its serum and retracts, it grabs the skin and that causes it to wrinkle. And remember, they scientifically proved that anything, I think 0.9 millimeters deep or more, means that the blood in those valleys or in those wrinkles will not be transferred to the linen cloth at all. There's zero transfer. They won't make contact. Um, so you can see the severe wrinkling here just from this one blood stain. Imagine being covered in blood stains. You'd be wrinkled all over. And this would lead to discontinuous blood stains because those blood stains wouldn't make contact with the cloth. I mean, the, this is way more than just a 0.9 millimeter uh, wrinkle or depth in terms of the wrinkles here. Um, but yet the shrouds bloodstains are continuous. There are no discontinuities in it, uh, despite scientifically proving that there would be a lot of wrinkles here. So that's an interesting aspect to, to get from this picture here. Now, one thing I, I should mention, um, that's it for the pictures, but don't forget there are anticoagulant aspects to the blood. So if the body's bloodstain, blood clotting process was depleted or diminished in some way that might lead to the blood stains being wetter longer than 30 minutes or that sort of thing again they they transferred it in various conditions and it, it depends on the environment how humid how moist it is but ulti ultimately they seem to have found that yeah it will be dry within about 30 minutes regardless of the conditions and it will lead to some severe wrinkling that's caused so that so that's sort of a problem here that that's it for the pictures that all of these pictures uh, i do want to say um so thank you to luigi garlicelli's and that their paper in terms of the pictures for the experiments to help you guys and also to mark antinacci and uh Arth dr arthur lind um for sharing these pictures with you in terms of their experiments uh in terms of blood transfer and that sort of thing uh, but I, I think it's important that I use these images because if you haven't read the articles on my blog site, um, it kind of helps you put into, you know put a visual image to what I'm talking about here. So I, I hope that helps. Um, there are more pictures that I didn't include. So please, you know if you really want to look into this, go to my blog site. All of these articles are there for free in terms of the blood pattern analysis, as well as Mark Antinacci and Dr. Arthur Lin's experiments on the bloodstain. So uh, you can see them in context and give them the credit. They, they deserve that. Um, but yeah, other than that, that, that's it for this show. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Uh, under an hour and a half, that's awesome for this supplemental show. I have next show, I guess, will be the Dr. Egel German show um, with David Russell on Torah Observant Christianity. Um, I'll post that up 
next next week. Um, otherwise, if you want to see it early, it's, it's being recorded on Monday. So I don't know when. Uh, Monday, uh, January 17th. Uh, so hopefully David Russell will have that up on Pora for you guys earlier than I will. But um, yeah, it, it should be a good show. In terms of the Shroud series, so the next thing I'm going to be do, finally I'm done with direct contact. Um, I covered the BPA analysis and a lot of the information on blood. I tried to be thorough in terms of painting, direct contact, and uh, a hybrid approach of direct contact plus painting and showed that none of those naturalistic mechanisms work on a balance of probabilities to explain the blood stains, thereby proving we probably need an extraordinary or miraculous mechanism. Um, but yeah, going forward with the rest of the ordinary naturalistic hypotheses, I'm not going to go into as much detail about the blood stains. I figure I've covered it in part 13 and part 13b here, so I'll reference you guys back. But uh, primarily, we'll be focused on the body images in studying the next mechanisms, which will be gas uh, diffusion, which will be the first one uh, on the agenda. So there's two gas diffusion mechanisms. Um, there's the vapograph hypothesis of Paul Vinion. And then there's the Maillard reaction by Dr. Sturp scientist, Dr. Ray Rogers. So we're going to be looking at those and uh, seeing... Do those work? How, how do those do in terms of explaining the Shroud's body images and, and images that we see on the Shroud? All right. Have a great week, everybody. Take care.